Today we're going to start with Daniel chapter 11 verse 5. Last week we saw that we got into that there's going to be three more Persian generals and then there's going to be Alexander the Great. And now we're going to go into this whole period that I don't know that much about. But we're going to cover like 250 years of history all using pronouns. You know, it's not that unusual. I'll have a conversation with somebody and they'll say, well, they went to the store and they drove and they, and it, okay, start over. Don't use pronouns. You know, give me, use, use names and so I can understand what you're saying. Well, we're going to go like 200 years using all pronouns. And this, this is for the most part something that's already happened because we're going to make it through the period leading up to Antiochus IV, whose epiphanies, who we saw in chapter 8, is the little horn that speaks pompous words and does the abomination of desolations. So we've already seen one abomination of desolations. And then we're going to jump 2,000 years and counting and see the next abomination of desolations that's still in our future, the one that's going to happen during the tribulation period. Okay? So we're going to see two abominations of desolations. This week we're going to lead up to the first one. Next week we're going to lead up to the second one. Now I'm going to go through all this history stuff and I'm taking people's words for it that are historians that tell us what all this stuff is, looking at in the rearview mirror saying, okay, we can look at history. Now we know who the pronouns are and what events we're talking about here. And you're not going to remember it. I'm confident of that because I've studied this a ton and I don't remember it. I'm going to have to read some of this stuff. And so what's the point? Let's start with what's the point and then we'll, we'll skim through this stuff and then hopefully say what's the point again and I'll cram it into the time we have. The point is God has history in control. His eyes on the sparrow. He knows the number of hairs on our head. And he told these people, all these things are going to happen. And unlike Revelation, where we look at it and say, man, there's some crazy stuff that's going to happen. I wonder what that is. And we said, right, Revelation is a real simple book if you go to it saying, okay, what am I supposed to do? Well, be a faithful witness. Don't fear death. Real simple. But if you go to it and say, what's going to happen? You can't understand what's going to happen. We now know through history, looking in the rearview mirror, what happened. And it's still hard to kind of figure out what happened or what we're going to go over. But this has happened, and so God's already predicted something that has happened. And we can look at this and say, well, you know, if God goes into this degree of detail to show that these things are going to happen, and they happen just like he said, we can be totally confident that all the things in Revelation are going to happen, and not one single thing is going to go outside his will. Everything's authorized. Okay? So I think that's the takeaway. Now... The first abomination of desolations happens in 167 B.C. Now, to go back to last week, we started in 323 B.C. That's when Alexander died. So Alexander, 331 B.C., he conquers the whole world, the known world at that time, conquers uh, Persia. And then he dies. He's eight years king, then he dies. Then what happens is, there's this guy named Perdiccas, who was the guy that became regent. Because Alexander's son is an infant. I mean, he's a baby. He's young. So they have a regent waiting for the son to grow up. When Alexander was asked who was to inherit his kingdom, he said the strongest. And this set up a series of wars between his successors called the Diadochi. And what they did is basically killed each other for the next decades. So Alexander, he was autocratic. If you crossed him, even if you had saved his life in battle, he'd have you killed. He was calculating. He took scientists with him everywhere he went. Remember, he was uh, tutored by Aristotle. He was conquering. He conquered the whole world. And he was ruthless. If you, if you got in his way, he would kill you. If you, you're his friend at that time, you know, you were fine. His generals picked that right up. 
that theme up and kept going. And so Perdiccas, when he became the regent, they took the other generals and they made them satraps of different areas. So here's some of the main players. Antigonus was a Macedonian soldier who was a satrap of Asia Minor, Turkey. Antipater was the Macedonian general. They left in control of Macedonia when, when he went to conquer Persia. So he's the real loyal guy. So Antipater was the guy protecting Alexander's family so the son could grow up and be the king. But unfortunately for Alexander's kid, when Antipater died in 319, so only four years after Alexander died, his son Cassander didn't have the affinity for the kids that his dad did, and he participated in murdering Alexander's kids. So there's no more heir to the throne other than the generals at this point. Cassander went in league with Lassimachus and Ptolemy. So Ptolemy is the, guy, the general that got Egypt, and he's the, the regent of Egypt. He calls himself a regent or satrap or something like that all the way from 323 to 305. He only started calling himself a king in 305. So he goes almost 20 years as, I'm not sure if somebody's going to take this kingdom put it back together so I'm going to hedge my bets. So that, that's how long it takes for people to start saying, okay, I'm in control now. So Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander, the guy that murdered the Alexander's kids, they go in league together to keep Antigonus from uniting the kingdom. Antigonus got real close. And Seleucus who ends up being a key character in this thing, he was a satrap over Babylonia. So Antigonus came, knocked him out, and Seleucus had to flee over to Ptolemy. And then Ptolemy and Lysimachus and Cassander go and they knock Antigonus off, and only then does Seleucus get to go back to his satrapy. Okay, you get it so far? Every one of these guys died a violent death except Ptolemy. Okay, they all killed each other or were killed by their soldiers. Nice family to be in, don't you think? So let's go to Daniel 11, chapter 11, verse 5. And because of the time here, I'm going to insert the interpretation of what's happening as we read. So when I'm saying things that aren't in there, that's because I'm adding it for explanation, okay? So also the king of the south. Now south, Ptolemy, and Egypt are all the same thing. South, Ptolemy, Egypt. So the king of the south, that's Ptolemy the first, shall become strong as well as one of his princes. So Seleucus I, who was made the satrap of Babylon, when Antagonus overthrew him, he had to go back to Ptolemy to be safe, and so he became one of Ptolemy's princes. So Seleucus I, and he shall gain power over him. So that means the north, Seleucus, gains power over the south. And have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So Seleucus, even though he was knocked out, he got installed back in, and he grew his kingdom to be even bigger than Ptolemy. First the south, Egypt is ascendant, and then the north. The Seleucid kingdom, the northern kingdom, the Syrian kingdom, and Antiochus. A lot of the kings in the north are named Antiochus. North, Seleucid, Antiochus, Syria, all the same thing. Ptolemy, south, Egypt, all the same thing. Okay, so that's how he became one of his princes and then became great. So verse 6. So at the end of some years, they shall join forces for the king, daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. So what happened was, now we're into the next generation. Bernice is the daughter of Ptolemy II. And so she was sent to the king of the north, who is now Antiochus II, to make an agreement. So the agreement they made was Bernice would, would marry Antiochus, and then their son would be king over both kingdoms. So now they're trying to reunite the kingdom again. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up. 
So here's what happened to Bernice. Antiochus II was already married to a lady named Laodice. And Laodice arranged to have Bernice and her husband murdered. So they did not stand. And their agreement did not stand. So the agreement, so she shall be given up. She was killed by Laodice, who was Antiochus II's existing wife before the agreement, with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in these times. Everybody's killed. So that's what that is. All right, so verse 7. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place. Aren't these pronouns awesome? So the branch of her roots, her is Bernice, the one that was killed, the one that came from Egypt to, to go up to Syria. So her roots. And that's her brother. And that turns out to be Ptolemy III. Ptolemy, Egypt, south. So arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them, and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt. So here's the only place where we get something besides a pronoun, or north or south, which is kind of a pronoun. So we know for sure the south is Egypt. So that's, that's one anchor that we've got. And uh, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So what happened was Ptolemy III was not happy that his uh, sister got murdered. And so he invaded Syria, and in doing so, won a great victory and looted them and took all the goodies back to the south. Verse 9, also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Now this one's real interesting because the commentaries say, we don't know what event this was. It apparently wasn't significant enough for secular history to record it. Which is kind of amazing because we know enough about this era where everything else in here, they can say, oh yeah, that's clear that that's what that is. And there doesn't seem to be any dispute about this. The main dispute tends to be about whether this was actually written before all these events happened or not. That's, that's where the liberals have to camp because this is so specific and so clear as to what's going on. So far, God is just telling them, hey, here's what's going to happen. Boom, 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 boom. And it all happened just like he said. Okay, verse 10. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. So this his and her and him and they is Seleucus III and Antiochus III. Antiochus III, they're both northern kings. So Seleucid North, Antiochus North. So Seleucus III and Antiochus III, called the Great, they're coming against Egypt. Now we're all the way up to 219 B.C. So Alexander dies in 323, so we're 219, we're about 100 years later now. About, boom, we're popping along. Verse 5 to verse 10, we've gone 100 years. Then the king of the south shall be moved with rage, south, that's Egypt, and go out and fight with him and with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. So here's what happens here. Seleucus II died in 226 B.C., but his sons, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, called the Great, continued the wars with the Ptolemies. So that's stir up strife in, chat, in uh, verse 10. Seleucus III was murdered after a brief three-year reign. Of course. What, what, other, that's, what else do you do? You murder people, right? And his brother, Antiochus III, came to power. He was called the Great because of his military successes. And in the time period between 219 and 218 B.C., he campaigned in Phoenicia and Palestine, so Israel and, and Lebanon area, part of the Ptolemaic Empire at that time. So at this point, Israel is under the south. It's under Egypt. So that's returned to the king of the south's fortresses in verse 10. So then in response, Ptolemy IV launched a counterattack. 
So both armies were really large. According to Polybius, Ptolemy's forces consisted of 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. Wouldn't that be cool to watch? Whereas Antiochus' army had 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. When the battle ended in 217 BC, Ptolemy had won a great victory over the Syrians at Raphia, which is in Israel. And it, so that's given into his hand. So the king of the south's enemies given into his hand. So Egypt won the great victory. So verse 12. So when he, this is Ptolemy, has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, that means more elephants, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. So because of this victory, Ptolemy's heart was filled with pride or lifted up, and the Egyptian army had slaughtered tens of thousands of the Syrian troops in the battle. There's one historian said that Antiochus III lost 17,000 soldiers. That's a lot of soldiers. Yet, Ptolemaic supremacy was not to continue. So at this point in the chapter, we have a switch, and dominance starts shifting from the Ptolemies to the Seleucids. So Ptolemies are dominant for about 100 years, and then it starts shifting to the Seleucids, the north. Seleucid, north, Syrian. Ptolemy, Egypt, south. And then approximately 15 years later, so 202 B.C., Alexander would have died in 323 B.C., so we're about 120 years after all this drama starts. Antiochus III again invaded the Ptolemaic territories with a huge army. The occasion for this invasion was the death of Ptolemy. Ptolemy the fourth and the crowning of his young son who was only like five years old. Okay, so you got a five-year-old king, what do you do? You invade. So Antiochus III took invasion, full invasion, the opportunity, and ta attacked Phoenicia and Palestine. So if you're Israel at this time, I don't know what this like. Oh, here they come again. You know, they're going to be, I don't know if they went out on the hills and watched them. I don't know how this worked. So verse 14. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people. So we're, to, we're you know, this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel. So he's saying your people are actually going to get involved at this point. And they shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops have no strength to resist. So what's happening here, this is the point at which now the nativist movement starts to take hold in Egypt. So remember, these are all Greeks running Egypt, running Syria, and they're running people that aren't Greek. And so the Egyptians are like, you know, we, we're kind of tired of having Greek rulers. Let's have our own rulers. So there's an uprising. And some of Antiochus's vassals are over there. Yeah, yeah, stirring it up. Okay, so that, that's the first part of this. And the vision that's being fulfilled apparently is this vision. And then some of the Israelites would rebel or exalt themselves against Egypt in fulfillment of this vision. And evidently the prophecy that's here, but without success. So it reads literally, but they will fall. And what happened here is General Scopus of the Egyptian forces punished the leaders of, Jews, of Jerusalem and Judah who rebelled against Ptolemaic government. In uh, verse 15, General Scopus engaged the Syrian forces at the Battle of Panium, which is near Caesarea Philippi. It's called Banius or Panius because they had a, an altar to Pan. They're a temple to Pan, the Greek god Pan. And that's where Peter said, Thou art the Christ, when Jesus said, you know, Who do you say I am? So right in there. And in 19. 
199 B.C., so Scopus was there and suffered severe losses. And then he retreated to Sidon on the Phoenician coast. And Antiochus, Antiochus North, Syrian, forces pursued the Egyptian and besieged Sidon. And General Scopus finally surrendered in 198 B.C. So Sidon is a coastal city, Tyre and Sidon, and it's where Lebanon is today, just north of Israel. So verse 16, I told you I was going to have to go fast to get this all going in. So this is a NASCAR event here. Verse 16, so he who comes against him. So this is this he is Antiochus the third still. So Antiochus the Great. Shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land, that's Israel, which with destruction in his power, which likely means he has the power to do whatever he wants to, which is important because his son Antiochus the fourth is going to be the one that does the abomination of desolations. He, Antiochus III, shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him, thus shall he do. He shall give him, the daughter of women, to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. What is this? So what happened was Antiochus III had a daughter named Cleopatra. Now, you've got to be careful with Cleopatra because there's seven of them. There's Cleopatra the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh. Okay, so this is the first Cleopatra, and her job was to go marry the Ptolemy that was on the throne at that time and seduce him into submission and corrupt him so that he would, you know, be vulnerable to Antiochus. And so that's the idea of to corrupt him. So she, he's trying to corrupt her, but instead she was actually loyal to her husband, so she did not get corrupted. So verse 18, after this, he, Antiochus III, as we're still talking about, shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler, which is going to be up Rome now, Rome enters the picture, shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So Rome defeated them in Turkey. That's what they're talking about there. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. This is Antiochus III's defeat and end. Having vanquished the Egyptians in 197 B.C., or shortly thereafter, Antiochus turned his attention to the coastlands, which is the islands or countries around the Mediterranean. And after Antiochus had some initial success, Lucius Cornelius Scipio Asiaticus, like that name, he's a ruler, or NASB translates commander, he was sent against him by the Roman government. And in 191 B.C., the Romans, fighting with their Greek allies, routed the Syrians at Thermopylae and forced them to withdraw from Greece and flee to Asia Minor. Then 30,000 Roman troops pursued Antiochus into Asia and defeated his much larger army of 70,000 at a battle in Smyrna. And then 188 B.C., the Romans forced Antiochus to sign the Treaty of Apamea. Polybius reported that the Syrian king was ordered to surrender territory, much of his military force, 20 hostages, one of whom was Antiochus IV, which is going to be Epiphanes, the guy that does the abomination desolation, hang on to that, and pay a heavy indemnity to Rome. So now they're under tribute to Rome. So Antiochus has gone from like the biggest guy in the Middle East to i got to pay tribute to Rome. So after this humiliating defeat, Antiochus returned to his country where he was killed by an angry mob in 187. So at least he wasn't killed by another ruler. But in desperate need of funds, particularly those required to meet the indemnity payments to Rome, the Syrian ruler pillaged the temple of Zeus, but was killed in the process evidently by citizens defending their sanctuary. So now, verse 20, his successor, who's going to be Seleucus IV, will send out a tax collector, a guy named Heliodorus, 
to maintain the royal splendor. In other words, to pay the tribute and still keep their lifestyle up. In a few years, however, he, Seleucus IV, will be destroyed, yet not in anger or battle. So what happened was Heliodorus poisoned Seleucus IV, hoping to take the throne after a short rule. It's kind of gross, isn't it? Now, is anybody feeling like, our politics aren't that bad? <laughs> so now we're going to go to the little horn of chapter 8. We saw this whole thing about Antiochus IV. Now we see kind of how Antiochus IV got on the scene in the first place. So now Antiochus IV is going to come. So verse 21. He, Seleucus IV, will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. This is kind of like the point in the play where the villain comes in and everybody boos. So this is the contemptible person. We're introduced right off the bat. He's got a black cape and a handlebar mustache and a black top hat. This is the guy who's been not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. So remember, he's in exile with the Romans. He got taken as a hostage. So when Seleucus IV died in 175 B.C., his younger brother seized the throne. This is the contemptible person. This is Antiochus IV. He wasn't supposed to be the one that was on the throne. He didn't have the honor of royalty. That's supposed to go to Seleucus IV's son, by the way, the of royal succession. But his son was being held hostage too, so he's now out of being hostage, and so he now seizes power. So that's how he gets to be on the throne. So he will invade the kingdom. Uh, it was better rendered, he will come to the kingdom. And this is talking about Syria, not Israel. Invade the kingdom is Syria. He didn't become king of Syria by means of military invasion. He came when his people are secure or in ease or quietness. The idea may be that Antiochus IV would come at a time of false security or come unawares. Verse 22. I'm going to skip over to the NASV version because I found the NKJV to be incomprehensible in this particular case. So 22 and 23. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. With only a few people, he will rise to power. So this is talking about Ptolemy's army being swept away before Antiochus IV. Okay, so here's what happened here. 169 B.C., Ptolemy VI launched an attack to regain the territories of Israel, Phoenicia, Palestine, that he had lost to the Syrians. But he had, the, he had an overwhelming army with him, but it was defeated by Antiochus' forces. Ptolemy was even captured or, or broken. It says destroyed, but his, his, basically his power was destroyed. He wasn't killed. And he's held as a hostage by the Seleucid king. Ptolemy is called a prince of the covenant in this verse because he agreed or made a covenant to become an ally of Antiochus IV if the Syrians would help him regain his throne in Egypt, which he had been taken by his younger brother. So if I lose my throne to my brother, I go to my enemy to get him to help me take the throne back, and then I attack my enemy again. Don't you love this? Okay, so Antiochus IV was delighted to make such a pact. He felt it would give him a foothold in Egypt. So with Syrian help, Ptolemy regained his throne, and later Ptolemy broke the agreement, allied himself with his brother Ptolemy VII, so the guy that he got Syria on his side to overcome, now he becomes his ally, and to dislodge Antiochus' troops and on the border of Egypt. Okay, so verse 24, When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. This is Antiochus IV still. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. 
So they felt secure without warning. Antiochus invaded the richest provinces, and the word here is like the fat ones, and plundered their treasure. So this includes Egypt, Judea, and other provinces where the Syrian forces were successful. Grandiose plans to conquer the fortresses in Egypt and so forth filled the proud king's head, but his successes would only last for a brief time. That is the time decreed by God. So once again, God's on the throne. He's got all this scripted out. These people only prosper when, when God allows them to prosper. And we've already seen this in Daniel, right? My servant Cyrus, my shepherd Cyrus, the anointed one Cyrus, who's doing my bidding to restore the Holy Land. Nebuchadnezzar, he saw, the only reason you're here, Daniel told him, is because God put you here. And then God had him go insane, and then he had him restored, okay? God is in control, even though these people are out of control. They're crazy. So, verse 25, he, Antiochus IV, shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, Egypt, with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For they shall devise plans against him. So they here, now we got that north and south pretty clear there, that they then is his advisors. So what happens is, Ptolemy's counselors sit at his table and make give him bad advice and it leads to Ptolemy's downfall. Okay? So I'll read it with that in mind maybe it'll be clear but he shall not stand meaning Ptolemy for they shall devise plans against him yes those who eat of the portion of his delicacies his advisors shall destroy him his army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain but these kings hearts shall be bent on evil and they shall speak lies at the same table but it shall not prosper for the end will still be at the appointed time while returning to his land with great riches his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So, this is what happened when Ptolemy VI was a prisoner. Ptolemy VII was made king. And this development made Ptolemy VI and Tychus IV plan how they would regain the Egyptian throne. So this is a different telling of the same event we've just talked about. So both kings made promises they had absolutely no intention of keeping, which seems to be the pattern here all the way through. So that's the speak lies at the same table. And of course uh, Antiochus was willing to support Ptolemy for his own personal gain and in turn Ptolemy made insincere promises in order to receive aid and so the figure of speaking lies at the same table is significant because in, in uh, Middle Eastern culture that was like the worst kind of lie so it's just showing how contemptible they are but they didn't prosper so verse 28, now we finally kind of arrive at the main point of the story. Gabriel is now telling us about the Holy Covenant. So now the Jewish people come in here, the Holy Covenant. So Antiochus' first campaign against Egypt was successful. And on his way home, he goes through Palestine. And when he got there, he found a Jewish insurrection in progress. So the Jews, they always are willing accomplices in their own problem. That seems to be the case. Because they're going to invite Antiochus to help them solve this. And the same thing happened a hundred years later. They invite the Romans in to solve it. And in both cases, the same thing happened. They appointed themselves as the ruler. So this is all now in First and Second Maccabees, if you want to read that. It's an apocryphal book, but I think generally considered a reliable book. Antiochus put the rebellion down and massacred 80,000 men, women, and children in doing it. He then looted the temple with the help of the evil high priest Menelaus. So Menelaus is like, come on in, 
It'll be great. Kill a bunch of people. I'll be your ally. So he's got insiders helping him. And the persecution of the Jews goes to calamitous proportions. So verse 29. At the appointed time, he, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, shall return and go toward the south. But it shall not be like the former or latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved. So here's what happened. The Syrians, the northern, the Seleucid dynasty, were moving to besiege Alexandria, which is a city in Egypt. Had a huge library, maybe up to 400,000 volumes in it. Remember the Greeks, Aristotle, you know, they're learned people. So the Roman commander Gaius Populus Lanius met Antiochus four miles outside the city and handed Antiochus IV a letter from the Roman Senate. And the letter ordered him to leave Egypt or face war with Rome. So Antiochus IV, who's an egomaniac, now gets a letter saying, leave or um, Rome is going to squash you like a little bug. Then the Roman commander drew a circle in the sand. So he takes a stick and he draws a circle around him and he says, you must answer this letter before you leave this circle. You remember, that's like lion, bear, leopard, and then this monster with iron teeth. Well, this is the monster with iron teeth coming on the stage now. So, And of course... Uh, Antiochus knows he can't beat Rome so he, he suffers the humiliation of withdrawing and he's really unhappy about it. So, on the way back home, he goes through Israel again. And so, verse 30b, he returns in rage against the Holy Covenant and does damage. So now he's really ticked off. He goes back through Israel. If you're a bully and a bigger bully kicks you, what do you do? Oh, you find somebody else to kick, right? So he goes through Israel. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. And they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So here it is. This is the first abomination of desolation. It's already happened. Another one's coming. The one Jesus spoke of is the one that's coming. So is there any way you could read all this stuff and predict, oh, I know what's going to happen. There's no way you could predict that. Even now, looking back, I'm reeling all this stuff off, and you're going, I just barely understand what he's saying. But what we do know is there was an abomination of desolation. We know that. So we've got signs we can look for. Trying to understand the events, we don't need to know that. What we need to know is God's in control of all the details. Okay, verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So this is really cool. This is one of the great things that's happened in the Bible. Antiochus is humiliated by Rome. He goes back to the Holy Covenant. And the head of his mercenaries and the chief collector of tribute, Apollonius, pretended to come in peace. But on the Sabbath day, everybody's relaxed. He attacked, massacred a ton of people, plundered the city. But he rewarded the apostate Jews like the high priest Menelaus who supported his Hellenistic policy. So now we have a divide. And we got people that support the invaders and people that don't. The same as in Roman times, in Jesus' time, the Herodians were guys who supported compromising with the Romans. So verse 31, the temple spoken of here as a fortress, probably because they had made it into a citadel. And then he, what he did, this, the physical thing we know from history, he did in 167 B.C. is where we're at here. And this is told in 1 Maccabees. He took an altar or idol statue devoted to Zeus, or Roman is Jupiter, and erected it into the temple. So this was the abomination of desolation. And on 25th of Cheslev, sacrifices, probably including pigs, were offered on the altar to Zeus. In this manner, the temple was desecrated and rendered empty of Yahweh worshippers. Antiochus made some uh, fine-sounding promises. It's flattery. That's what he was. He was a guy that did intrigue. And uh, the apostate Jews, those who do wickedly against the covenant, allied with him. But 
even in this dark period, there were some faithful witnesses. So here we go again, faithful witnesses who don't fear death. And these guys turned out to be the Maccabees. So many in Israel stood firm and resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or profane the Holy Covenant, and they did die. That's what happened. So, here's what happened. Antiochus IV called Epiphanes because he said, you know, I'm the image of God. You know, like Epiphany, image. So, I'm the image of God. So, the Maccabees, there was a certain priest named Mattathias who lived in a town 17 miles from Jerusalem. The, The resistance started in the rural areas. We might see some of that going on in our day. So, he refused to forsake his God and he had five sons, three of whom became known as the Maccabees. Maccabee means hammer. Even though initially only one of his sons, Judas, was called the hammer. But it originally kind of came to denote his whole family. So they led a victory. And at first, it was just a handful of people. And everybody else is like, I don't want to join. I'll get killed. But because of their bravery, a whole bunch of people aided them. So verse 33, and those of the people who understand shall instruct many. So here's the job of the believers in difficult times. The ones who understand need to instruct. There's two ways to instruct, tell and show. And the Maccabees did both. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now, when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. But many shall join them by intrigue. And some of those with understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So, when difficult times come like this, some people die. And those people that die, why did they die? It refined them. It purified them. It made them white. It made them overcomers. Sound familiar? They won when they did that. And only a few people begin. But then many start to come in. And a lot of them secretly. They're secret followers. Some people are visible uh, leaders. And other people are visible leaders. And a lot of other people are just following secretly. And that's okay. That's all right. If you do what you're called to do. So what happened was the Maccabees, even though it was a tiny little group of people, they rose up and they resisted. And Antiochus IV had some other issues that caused him to have to make a decision. And he left and he left it to the Maccabees and they won. So far from the 160s all the way to 30 BC, Israel is now ruled by this priestly family. Now, you know about their successors. You know a lot about their successors, the Maccabees. They're called the Pharisees. So when the disciples come to Jesus and say, Did you know that what you're saying is upsetting the Pharisees? The reason they're saying that is because the Pharisees are national heroes. They saved Judaism from extinction because Antiochus had made it illegal to circumcise your babies. He had made it illegal to practice Judaism. Hellenism only was allowed. And people were murdered by Antiochus IV if they didn't follow his edict. And the Maccabees stood up and said, kill us if you want to. We're not going against God. And miraculously, miraculously, they won. They're the heroes. And their successors, the Pharisees, were heroes. The Sadducees split off from the Pharisees at some point, And they were, by that time, I don't think really the heroes of the average person. But the Pharisees continued to be. And Jesus overcame their tremendous goodwill by giving them a new brand. Hypocrite. Hypocrite to us means someone who says one thing and does another. Hypocrite at the time Jesus borrowed that term meant a Greek actor who holds a mask up in front of his face. Because in those days the plays had two people in them. 
So you have eight characters. You hold up a mask, and he says, you know, and he says, uh, "Hey, how are you today?" And the other guy says, "Oh, I'm fine." And then he takes a different mask and says, "Oh, well, I want this." You know, they just change their voice, and they have these two masks. Hypocrite. So that's what Jesus says is, you know what these guys are? They're like those Greek actors that hold up a mask. And he flipped it on them. Okay? But until that time, they're the heroes because they had saved Israel. And rightfully so. The defenders of the faith, that's what they were. Because the Maccabees defended the faith. So, will you remember any of that? I don't think I will. And I'm sorry to have talked NASCAR, but I did it. I got it all in. And what I want you to leave with is this overwhelming sense that the world hasn't changed very much. Human nature's the same. Human nature doesn't change. People want power. And they want it for themselves. They want it their way. Why? Because they're of their father, the devil, who said what? I shall ascend to the Most High. He was already the cherub in, in charge of everything. But that wasn't good enough. He wanted God's seat. So men say, I shall ascend to the Most High. I want what you have. I want what you have. I'll do anything to get it. I'll kill. I'll murder. Satan's job's description is what? He's the accuser, and he's the father of lies, and he's a murderer from the beginning. That's what he does. Well, here you go. So that's what his administration looks like. But Jesus is preparing a new administration, isn't he? A new earth ruled by Jesus, who for the suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor, and who is paved the way for many sons to take that throne with him. To him who overcomes, I will give to him to sit on the throne with me. He wants a group of servant kings. Anything serving about these kings? They serve their own appetites. They serve their own interests. They did not serve others. They didn't serve their people. They took their people to battle and have them trampled by elephants. But what Jesus is preparing is servant kings, people who will take the job he gave them to do, whatever that is, and do it faithfully and not fear death, not fear failure, not fear rejection, not fear anything that the world might keep on them because they're faithfully doing what God gave them to do. And so that's how you counter all this nasty stuff. The Maccabees countered it. Daniel countered it. Revelation speaks to us and says, I want every one of you to play your role. Be a faithful witness and don't fear death. And as you see things go crazy out there in the world, look, don't worry about it. Just play the role God gave you to do. You're not in charge of outcomes. I'll take care of outcomes, God says. I just want you to be faithful where I put you and what I gave you to do. Which neighbor are you supposed to help? The one laying in the road you're walking down, right? You work on the things God put in your path. We don't have to fix all this stuff. God is going to fix all this stuff. If we'll do the part God gave us to do as our role in the body, then we're following in Daniel's footsteps. We're following in the Maccabees' footsteps. We're following in the footsteps of being an overcomer, a winner, a Nikeo. One who does what God asks him to do. A faithful witness that doesn't fear death. Cool, huh? Alright, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for allowing us the honor of getting to participate in this world that's fallen and nasty. And giving us an era where the fallenness and nastiness is not quite as brutal. But it's the same spirit and the same fight. And I pray that you'll help us all be hammers in the place you've given us to use that hammer. In Jesus' name, amen.